very much. Well, good morning to everyone and Merry Christmas to all of you. It's a pleasure to see your shining faces on this snowy day. And to those of you who are online with us, welcome to you and a Merry Christmas to you. Thankfully, you could join us uh, through uh, the wonders of the internet again today. Um, our text, our reading for this morning is taken from Hebrews chapter 4. If you'd like to turn there, please. Hebrews chapter 4. I'm going to begin reading at verse 15. Well, actually, I'll read at verse, I'll start at 14, the beginning of the paragraph, and I'll read down through verse 10 of chapter 5. Hebrews 4.14 through chapter 5 and verse 10. I would invite you, if you are able, please, to stand for the reading of God's holy and infallible word. Since then, we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. Let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. For every high priest chosen from among men is appointed to act on behalf of men in relation to God, to offer gifts and sacrifices for sins. He can deal gently with the ignorant and wayward since he himself is beset with weakness. Because of this, he is obligated to offer sacrifice for his own sins, just as he does for those of the people. And no one takes this honor for himself, but only when called by God, just as Aaron was. So also Christ did not exalt himself to be made a high priest, but was appointed by him who said to him, you are my son, today I have begotten you. As he says also in another place, you are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. In the days of his flesh, Jesus offered up prayers and supplications with loud cries and tears to him who was able to save him from death, and he was heard because of his reverence. Although he was a son, he learned obedience through what he suffered. And being made perfect, he became the source of eternal salvation to all who obey him, being designated by God a high priest after the order of Melchizedek. About this, well, well yeah, well, I'll go ahead and start verse 11 anyway. About this, we have much to say, and it's hard to explain since you've become dull of hearing. God adds his blessing to the reading and hearing of his holy word. Please do be seated. I get going on that text, and I just want to keep reading about Melchizedek. I was on a roll. Anyway, our text this morning is actually uh, taken from Matthew chapter 1 and verse 23. And I think as we go through you'll, uh, today, you'll understand why I read from the book of Hebrews today. But Matthew 1 verse 23, familiar verse to all of us, particularly at this time of year. Behold, the virgin shall be with child and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which is translated God with us. Well, when my daughter Chelsea was about two and a half years old, I asked her why we pray in Jesus' name. Her answer was really a, a precious answer to me. She said, because we love him. 
Well, that wasn't the answer I was really looking for. I mean, I went on to explain to her the concept of substitutionary atonement. Um, I, I'm not sure she grasped it, but uh, anyway. She nevertheless did hit upon, um, hit, he, she hit upon the truth, coming at it from a different way, uh, so to speak. I mean, why do we love him? We love him because he first loved us. And how did he demonstrate that love? He loved us and gave himself for us, dying on the cross for our sins. And why does his death mean anything? It is because he is Emmanuel, God with us. We pray in his name because there is no other name under heaven whereby we must be saved. So Chelsea gave the right answer after all. The Perhaps the most controversial area of theology that the church has ever known has been that concerning the nature of Jesus Christ. How can men understand the mysteries of the Godhead? The words of Scripture are clear, however, even if the truths behind them are difficult for us to understand or impossible for us to understand fully. So what do the words Emmanuel, God with us, mean? And what significance do they carry for our faith? We're going to look at this little phrase, Emmanuel, God with us, in kind of an unusual way. It's all about a matter of emphasis. So we're going to begin by talking about God with us. Last two words there. God with us as man. We're going to look at the humanity of Jesus Christ, first of all. Now, you will notice, uh, those of you that are looking at the note pages, if you are, this is a really full outline. There's a lot of stuff here. And some of you are probably despairing that we will cover all of it. You're, you're thinking maybe correct. Okay. I'm going to try to cover all of it and go rather quickly, but we'll, we'll see how it goes. Um, but God with us as man. First of all, man physically. Man physically. Was Jesus really fully man? Well, according to the scriptures, he certainly was, and in many, many ways. Uh, he was born of a woman uh, in, in the flesh. Uh, Isaiah 7, 14, familiar passage to us, uh, that uh, a virgin shall conceive and bear a son and call his name Emmanuel. He was born with a body that was subject to weakness, the weaknesses of the flesh. Uh, Matthew 4 uh, and verse 2 speaks about uh, Jesus after his time of fasting. He'd been fasting 40 days and 40 nights, over a month. And afterwards, not surprisingly, he was hungry, it says there. And in other passages throughout the Gospels, we read of Jesus being weary or thirsty um, and hungry in other places as well. Not to mention the... the uh, the pain that he endured and the incredible pain uh, that uh, was associated with the crucifixion. Physically, he cleansed the temple. It wasn't some spirit phantom that swept through the temple and overturned money changers' tables and took a whip of cords and drove out the money changers. No, in John chapter 2, it says he, he made a whip of cords and he drove them all out of the temple with the sheep and the oxen poured out the changers' money, and overturned the tables. That, oh, I would love to have been there, seen that. It must have been an incredible thing. 
as the Son of God cleaned house. But he did so physically. He did so physically. Um, he, his resurrection was proved by physical science, for example. Um, in John chapter 20, when uh, he stood before the disciples, he showed them his hands and his side. And then the disciples were glad when they saw the Lord. You know, that, you know, he invited them to come. Remember, Thomas was doubting, you know, unless I see this. Um, Jesus said, come, put your fingers in there. Put your, thrust your hand in. You see, I'm flesh and blood. Um, the, plus, uh, he did things like eat afterwards, that sort of thing. So we have that uh, testimony. And then of a, maybe of a more theological nature of this discussion uh, is the title, The Son of Man, that it happens quite frequently. Uh, in fact, in the Old Testament and New Testament, uh, this phrase, Son of Man, uh, not always applying to Christ, but often, but the phrase apply, appears 194 times throughout the scriptures. Prior to the prophets, um, the phrase re would refer to human beings or des descendants. In Ezekiel, it is the preferred title of the prophet. And in Ezekiel, that's used 93 times. 93 out of the 194 times are in Ezekiel, of all places. Um, in Daniel, uh, it is used for the one who is standing there with the three friends in the fiery furnace. And the rest, 83 times, uh, are all in the New Testament. All but four of them are in the Gospels, and all but one of them are referring to Christ Jesus. This phrase encompasses the Messiah's humanity, his lordship as, uh, as uh, over his people, his sovereignty, his ministry of revelation, his obedient suffering, his death, his resurrection, all of these with, with physical um, significance. And not only that, it also speaks of the Son of Man in being glorified in his returning. So he's going to come back fully. He's not leaving his humanity behind in his glorification. He is eternally the God-Man, fully human as well as fully divine. In short, this title declares the scope and the aim of his redeeming work, which is humanity. He's not a distant God. He is a God who is with us, who is of us, and who has earned the right to rule and reign his own. That is why he is the Son of Man, fully man in every respect. Now, not just physically, but also he is man mentally and emotionally. Um, he rec he's, I'm going to use this one more phrase. He's also man compositionally. Now, what do I mean by that? Well, what are we composed of as human beings? I mean, there's the flesh and blood, right, that we have. But there's also our souls. And depending on whether you're a dichotomist or a trichotomist, if you want to divide soul and spirit and, and uh, make it body, soul, and spirit, or just body and soul, uh, both are acceptable theologically. Um, in any case, there's a composition. We're not just automatons. We're not just robots. We're not just a machine. We're living beings that are relational and whose, 
whose spirits are able to uh, reach beyond the confines of our fleshly shell into relationship with the divine. And Jesus was man in that way as well, fully possessed of his spirit. Remember when he, uh, on the cross, uh, when he cried out to the Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. Um, it, well, those weren't just idle, figurative kinds of words. Um, he was committing his soul to the Father. But let's think about this. Mentally and emotionally, he was subject to temptation. Um, otherwise, what would be the point of the devil taking him out into the wilderness and lifting him up and tempting him different? Uh, those would be meaningless. There was, there was clearly some temptation there, some, some authority, some power that the devil had by, by God's allowance that he could, he could offer the Son of God, and yet Jesus withstood those temptations. As a man, he knew sorrow, he knew love, he knew anger. Uh, John eleven thirty five, famous verse, Jesus wept. Uh, Matthew nine thirty six. when he saw the multitudes, he was moved with compassion for them. I think about, again, the, the, the money changers incident when he saw with the desecration of the temple. He, he, was, he was angry, justly so, and acted upon that anger to drive them out. He uh, was, as a man, he increased in wisdom. In Luke chapter 2, we read of him as, as a young person who increased in wisdom and stature, and he was in favor with God and men. That's a remarkable thing. That the God of the universe, who is infinite, who knows all things, yet in his humanity was learning. Can't explain that, um, but that's what it says. He uh, not only increased in general wisdom, he learned and applied the scriptures well. Now, he wrote the scriptures as part of the Godhead. As one of the members of the Godhead, he is the one who inspires Scripture, and yet he learns it and discusses it and applies it uh, as a man. In Luke chapter, again, in Luke chapter 2, after three days, remember when uh, Mary and Joseph were looking for, for him there in Jerusalem, and he, there he was in the temple, a remarkable scene. They found him there sitting in the midst of the teachers, both listening to them and asking them questions. And all who heard him were astonished at his understanding and answers. So he's fully man, according to the scriptures, yet without sin, without the corruption of sin uh, working upon him uh, with success, uh, as it does with us. So fully man, Jesus is able to feel our infirmities. He is able to represent us as the second Adam. And we uh, read something of that in our reading in the book of Hebrews, did we not? As our great high priest who is able to, to uh, represent us. He's able to take our sins upon himself and bear our punishment as one of us. He had to be one of us in order to represent us. Otherwise, 
his representation would not be valid. His perfect obedience and manhood satisfied the demands of God's justice perfectly and opened the doors of heaven to all those who were called by his name. But the power of man is not sufficient. It's not just that he was a great man. That he was a or even that he was the perfect man. Understand this. Mankind is constantly trying to find a way to and certainly we change the standard of perfection so that we can meet it, but generally mankind is striving to be perfect. To justify existence, to justify authority, to justify power, to justify any deliverance, we earn it. But Jesus was not just a perfect man. He was also fully God. You have to have divine power to bring the deliverance of humanity about, not just a perfect, solely human being. So we could uh, take some time, I won't, this morning, to look at Hebrews chapter 1 and read through there. But we'll have occasion to refer to that and some other passages as well. But we want to move on to think about Jesus as fully God. In the Confession of Faith, chapter 8, section 2, paragraph 2, we read these words, The Son of God, the second person in the Trinity, being very and eternal God of one substance and equal with the Father, did, when the fullness of time was come, take upon him man's nature, with all the essential properties and common infirmities thereof, yet without sin, being conceived by the power of the Holy Ghost in the womb of the Virgin Mary, of her substance, so that two whole, perfect, and distinct natures, the Godhead and the manhood, were inseparably joined together in one person without conversion, composition, or confusion." which person is very God and very man, yet one Christ, the only mediator between God and man. Pretty comprehensive, packed statement. So let's think about the first part of Emmanuel. Now, God with us. God with us. How is he God? What are the scriptures say about the Godhead of Jesus Christ? Well, first of all, he's God in power. He's God in power. He's the creator of the world, according to Colossians chapter 1 and Hebrews chapter 1. Colossians 1, For by him were all things created that are in heaven and that are on earth, visible and invisible, whether they be thrones or dominions or principalities or powers. All things were created by him and for him, and he is before all things, and by him all things consist. He's the creator of all things. And Hebrews 1 tells us that he sustains it all, holds it all together by the word of his power. As God, in his power, he performed great miracles. In John chapter 14, Jesus says, Believe me that I'm in the Father and the Father in me. Or else believe me for the sake of the works themselves. It's like, if you want evidence, and you keep saying you want evidence, you keep saying you want signs. If you read through the Gospels, they're all like, show us a sign, show us a sign, show us a sign. And Jesus is showing them signs right and left. And they still don't believe. But that's their problem and not his. He has demonstrated who he is. And as God, in his power, he conquered death. In Matthew 28, verse 6, the angels tell 
the, the sorrowful there, the mourners. He is not here, for he is risen, as he said. Come see the place where the Lord lay. Romans 1, uh, no, not 1, Romans 14, verse 9. The Apostle Paul says, For to this end Christ died and rose and lived again, that he might be Lord of both the dead and the living. And this resurrection, uh, the you know, Jesus said, I have the power to lay down my life and I have the power to take it up again. This command I have from my Father. Jesus raised people from the dead. But his resurrection was unique in that he, had the, he laid down his life and he had the power to take it up again. Whereas those he raised, of course, uh, they had no power to do anything until he called them. Kind of like us in our salvation. Anyway, God in his power conquered death, and Christ is the one who did that. He's also God shown by the various attributes that are attributed to him. In the larger catechism, verse, uh, not verse, uh, question 11, how does it appear that the Son and the Holy Spirit are God equal with the Father? The answer, the scriptures manifest or make clear that the Son and the Holy Spirit are God equal with the Father, ascribing unto them such names, attributes, works, and worship as are proper to God only. So when we go through the scriptures, you see, for example, in 1 John 5, 20, uh, that the Son of God, the Lord Jesus Christ, is described as the one who is true. In Acts chapter 4, as the saints pray, ascribed to him his holiness, that he is the holy Savior. In, in Isaiah 9, 6, the government has been given to him. He is the one who is the wonderful counselor, the mighty God, the everlasting Father and the Prince of Peace. He is authoritative divinely authoritative in his attributes. John 1, 1 makes it very clear that he's eternal. He was in the beginning with God. His knowledge is infinite. John chapter 2. Um, Jesus did not commit himself to those who wanted to make him king because it says he knew all men had no need to testify of man for he knew what was in man. Jesus knew full well as God what was going on. In the hearts of men. In Mark chapter 1, Jesus is moved with compassion, reaches out and heals, re revealing the divine attribute of mercy, that, and a mercy that is able to be carried out in such a miraculous fashion. And in 2 Timothy 4, I charge you therefore before God and the Lord Jesus Christ, who will judge the living and dead at his appearance, uh, at his appearing and his kingdom. Paul is thinking of the Lord Jesus in the same breath as with God the Father as the one who is just and the judge. These are just a few of the attributes of God that are ascribed to the Lord Jesus Christ. And uh, not uh, in an idolatrous way, but in a way that is true and accepted before God. The last aspect of God with us as God, uh, I'll put it this way, um, from John chapter 10 and verse 30, Jesus says, I and the Father are one. He is God in unity with the Father. He was, in John 17 and John 8, he refers to uh, the fact that the Father sent him. He's commissioned by the Father to come and do the Father's will, and that he 
does, that he thinks alike with the Father, that he's one with the Father, that he declares what the Father has declared, and he has done so perfectly and faithfully. In John chapter 9, we read there uh, of the title, the Son of God that is ascribed to him. And the apostle in Romans chapter 1 Uh, Paul says, verses 3 and 4, concerning his son, Jesus Christ, our Lord, who was born of the seed of David according to the flesh and declared to be the son of God with power according to the spirit of holiness by the resurrection of the dead. The resurrection proved that deity. We talked about the title son of man a little bit ago. Well, the son of God is a title that Christ claimed and many others applied it to him. It declares that he is eternally begotten of and one with the Father. The title is not one of a subservient, lesser being. It is of one who is God. The phrase itself is an accommodation to our understanding since the father-son relationship is as close a parallel as we will find in, in our existence to the relationship that exists between God the Father and God the Son. But this phrase, the Son of God, encompasses all uh, that uh, we rest in for our salvation. The greatness of God the Father and God the Son. The greatness of His love. The greatness of His personal attention to our situation. The uniqueness of our divine Savior. uh, The worship and glory that are due to Him. That He rightly claimed the title is evidenced by His power to have life in himself, to reveal and glorify the Father, to redeem men from sin and death, to raise the dead and to judge the living. He is both Lord and Christ, and in him dwells all the fullness of the Godhead bodily. What an incredible matter for praise. And finally, pretty simply, well, he's called God, by God, Hebrews chapter 1, verses 8 and 9. Of the Son, he says, Your throne, O God, he's quoting the Psalms here, is forever and ever. The scepter of uprightness is the scepter of your kingdom. You have loved righteousness and hated wickedness. Therefore, God, your God, has anointed you with oil of gladness beyond your companions. So he's called God by God. But now, quickly, it's important that we do not view our Savior as the sum of two parts. He is not God plus man. That was the error of the Nestorian heresy um, in uh, the 4th and 5th centuries. The divine and human natures are not parallel to each other. They are united as one, but without confusion. And that's a mystery that only the Holy Spirit can reveal. Only the Holy Spirit can convince a person of. But upon this rests our faith, for Christ was given another name also. Call his name Jesus, for he shall save his people from their sins. And that brings me to the last part of that little phrase, Emmanuel, God with us, and that is the name Emmanuel. 
He's with us, God with us, yes, as man, God with us as God, but he is with us most supremely and particularly as the God-man. Now, in the whole discussion about the nature of Jesus through the centuries, the, the various cults and heresies that have, that have arisen trying to wrestle with something that man's mind explodes trying to figure out because it's beyond us. And so if you're not willing to just accept uh, what the Word says, you're gonna, we've got to explain it away so it makes sense to me. You're going to come down to one error or the other. You're going to think he's... You're going to come down on he's more man than God or he's more God than man. To make it, there are lots of little variations in there, but that's basically what you're going to end up with. So, think about the effect upon his divine nature. What, what effect did his humanity have? Some who don't like the humanity of Jesus Christ think it's because, you know, if he's human, well, that somehow corrupts the divine nature somehow. So that can't be. We can't corrupt. God is incorruptible, so man can't really touch that. And um, it shows a profound lack of understanding about the divine nature. A.A. Uh, a. Hodge, a theologian associated with Princeton Seminary many, many years ago, uh, made this comment about this, that divinity continues to exist as the eternal personal word embracing a perfect human nature so that it becomes a part of him and an organ of his will. In other words, the divine nature is unchanged. The humanity of Christ does not corrupt deity. I mean, if you think about it, if he's truly God, he's not like the, the guy... If he was, a, if he was a, a God of the sort that men make up, well, sure... That kind of God is easily corruptible. Just read the Greek myths sometimes, and, and you'll see how often the, the gods were corrupted by the things that uh, uh, human beings uh, were corrupted by. But our God is not like us, and he is something wholly other. He, his divinity uh, cannot be uh, impacted one way or the other by our humanity. Emmanuel transliterates uh, a Hebrew word. Um, if you put, the, or, or a Hebrew phrase, there's two little, two words there. With us is God, is what the phrase means. Um, the help of God is thus seen. A.T. Robertson, the great Greek scholar, uh, would point out that Jesus would say to Philip, he that has seen me has seen the Father in John 14, 9. And of course, in Colossians chapter 2 and verse 9, I already actually cited this verse just a moment ago, in him dwells all the fullness of the Godhead bodily. Now, that's a mystery how those things go together, but his divine nature is unchanged. But what about the effect upon his Human nature. Now, clearly, divine nature is the more powerful, it is the more supreme, it is the more um, um, eternal and perfect. Uh, not, not, you know, our human nature and even Jesus' human nature was, as we already talked about, he was subject to weaknesses and subject to emotions and so on, of, of, of discouragement and other things as well uh, that uh, could, could take place there. So what effect would... 
would the the God man relationship have upon his human nature? Well, in in Philippians chapter two, we read that Jesus left all that was rightfully his behind to humble himself and become obedient unto death, even the death of the cross, by first taking upon himself human flesh. In in this case, humanity is definitely getting an upgrade. That is why Jesus would go on to be called the firstborn, the one who is in all things preeminent. Uh, His human nature is... uh, is exalted even beyond human standards. The exaltation of all human excellence because of the because of the uniting with the divine nature. Uh, Jesus wasn't just a human being who did really good, who was who even did perfectly. We don't even have any concept of the perfection of Jesus Christ. Or of God Himself. As a supreme man, He becomes worthy of all dignity and glory above all other men. And the effect of His human nature is that because He is fully divine, He is also able to be present with every believer simultaneously. Still in His humanity, He's still the infinite God. When we talk about the Lord Jesus Christ dwelling with us, it's not that uh, you got a peace and you got a peace and I got a peace. No, he's fully with each one of us. I don't understand that. Can't comprehend it. But that's what I read. And by the grace of God, that's what I believe. And I'm thankful for it. Um, we read these words in Matthew 18 and verse 20. Where two or three are gathered together in my name, I am there in the midst of them. Emmanuel means God with us. He's united to us, manifested in the flesh with us. Just as the soul is present with the body, it is incapable of extension in itself. Jesus in his divinity, um, being one with uh, his humanity, um, he's one being, and he's fully manifested in both in both regards, as as incredible, matchless God and perfect human being. Finally, let's think about the effect upon the church. What does it mean for us as the God Man? I mean, we're talking about a lot of theology here, and uh, some would say you know, more theoretical or certainly abstract kind of ways of thinking about the Lord Jesus. What was what the, the impact of this divine human relationship within the one person, the Lord Jesus Christ? Well, um, I'm not going to steal too much thunder here from uh, Elder Matthews and Brother Erickson in their upcoming study in the book of Hebrews. But um, you may notice as you look through these notes, there's a lot of passages of Hebrews to go look at. <laughs> um, they are going to be exploring this uh, in depth and I'm looking forward to that in the weeks to come. But let me just point out a few things here. 
Because he is our our fleshly brother, we may very well we we have a very uh, real familial relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ. As man, he is our brother. As God, he is the brother who is always with us. And we may have that fellowship with him. We come together to worship him and he is here among us and we fellowship with him. Because he is the God-man, the perfect mediator, as we read um, a little bit earlier, we may know freedom from our bondage, the bondage of sin. As the uh, perfect mediator in Hebrews chapter 2 and verse 17 refers to that, Christ destroyed the bondage of the hearts of his elect, that bondage to the devil, the bondage to sin, the bondage to temptation. He destroyed it. The church father Athanasius, um, in his uh, debates with the heretic Arius, who uh, did not like the humanity of Jesus Christ, didn't want to have that there. Um, Athanasius pointed out what Jesus did not assume he could not save. Because because Jesus assumed our humanity, he could therefore act as our redeemer. And so he could then free us from bondage. And not just initially bring us to redemption, but also Hebrews chapter 9 goes on to uh, teach uh, about our sanctification. And this is related to his deity. So his sacrifice, yes, a once for all sacrifice. But it has eternal significance because of his eternal divine nature. And so he continues to work to sanctify us, to make us more and more holy and conformed to his image. And then finally, our perfect and final redemption. His blood had to be shed in the flesh. Had to be blood. Noahic covenant uh, goes way back to that statement there that whosoever sheds man's blood by man shall his blood be shed. If you think about it, every sin of ours is a murder of the image of God. Everyone. And only the blood of uh, a human could answer for the life of another human. But if that blood is corrupted by sin and imperfection, and certainly limited by just being the blood of one person only, without the divine nature, it would be pretty hopeless. But because Jesus is the divine man, the the God-man, his blood to be applied to all of his children. And so um, that blood had to be shed to pay for our sins, and it did pay for our sins. As Hebrews 9 goes on to tell us, that sacrifice was once for all. By that sacrifice, once for all, he put away sin. That's in verse 26 of Hebrews chapter 9. Um, That's an ongoing, continuous action. It's a putting away. Christ is continually putting away our sins. We continue to fall and fail and sin before God and rebel. His blood continues to be efficacious because of his divinity. He offered himself uh, once. And by the way, uh, the sense of that that, uh, verb there 
means just that. He offered himself. It's not he was offered. He offered himself. No other offering was necessary or acceptable, but only his as the God-man. And so the effect upon his church, our redemption, and our redemption unto, unto being sanctified and ultimately glorified, as uh, the Apostle Paul says in Romans chapter 8. Now, the mystery of the incarnation of Jesus Christ is one that is totally beyond our capability of understanding fully. All we can do is describe what is true from the Scriptures and then humbly bow to the majesty of our Savior and God. My prayer for you is that you know and love this Jesus, Emmanuel, whom to know, know aright is life eternal. Let's pray. Thank you, Father, for our precious Savior, Jesus Christ, fully God and fully man, who alone could represent us and represent you at the same time and satisfy all that was necessary for our redemption once and for all. Lord, let us look to no other Savior. Let us certainly not look to ourselves, but let us fix our eyes upon Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith. Thank you, Lord God, for his precious sacrifice, obedience, and and perfect fulfilling of all things required for our redemption. Help us to walk joyfully and humbly in your service as a result. In Christ's name we pray.